as we all grow older, and we are all growing older, we come to understand that love is different than we first imagined. Love is more than impulsive words or actions. It is immovable commitment and conviction and choice. Love is more than flutters and feelings. It is faithful and fixed favor upon another. Love is costly. It persists. It pursues. It even pays the price for another. Love is hard, sometimes heavy, and it is also hopeful. As we grow older, we come to understand that love is all of these things and more. And we actually understand that love has to be all of these things and more. Because sin is so destructive. Sin destroys us and it destroys our relationships. Love, real love is all of these things and more because its purpose is to bind us together where sin threatens to tear us apart. Here's the good news of Hosea chapter three. The good news of the passage that we're gonna be studying together this morning. We, we have been prone to wander, prone to leave the God of love. But God in his steadfast love and faithfulness has pursued us. He's sought us and bought us in the redeeming, through the redeeming blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his love, he has bound us to himself and in his love, he will not let us go. If you take away anything from Hosea chapter 3 this morning, I pray that it's this, that you would come to understand that God in Christ has pursued you, that he's purchased you, and that he has purposed to bless you in his love, and he will not let you go. Wander no more, and be found in the wonder of his love. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your copy of God's Word to Hosea chapter 3. That's on page 752 of the Bibles provided. Hosea was a prophet of God. He was called in the latter half of the 8th century to preach to the northern kingdom of Israel. God's uh, people had been divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And Hosea is a prophet, especially to the northern kingdom of Israel, just before the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrian army in 722 BC. And Hosea's uh, call, his ministry, is to proclaim God's coming judgment. God will judge the northern kingdom of Israel for their sin, for their idolatry, for their pursuit of the false gods. But... God will also be merciful. He will send His Redeemer and King to rescue them and save them from their sins. That's Hosea's calling. That's the message that he is to explain to the northern kingdom of Israel. But he's also to exemplify that message in his own life. He is meant to display God's message of judgment and mercy. So we learned in chapter 1 that God called Hosea to marry Gomer, a woman who would turn out to be unfaithful to him. And together they had three children whose names signified that God would judge the northern kingdom of Israel. We learned that in chapter 1, that Hosea, his life would be a display of what God would do. But we also learned that God would be merciful. He would regather the scattered people of Israel. That those who were not his people would be called his people. Those to whom he would show no mercy, he would allow the Assyrian army to ravage as they came in and destroyed them. 
He would show mercy to them. That's what we've learned in chapter 1. In chapter 2, that message was expounded upon and explained further as God spoke directly about the people of Israel, about their sins, this long litany of sins that they had. And God said, you have this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin. It seemed to go on and on and on. And He said, and therefore, I will allure you. Therefore, I will win your heart. That's what God purposed to do. And we learn as we come into chapter 3 that the unfaithfulness that we saw in the people of Israel seems to have taken place in Hosea's marriage. Gomer has left. And we are given a new instruction for Hosea, a new command. What is Hosea to do? Well, the Lord tells him what to do. He is to love his wayward wife. He is to explain God's love, but now he, he really must exemplify it and demonstrate it. So we can assume that all of Israel's unfaithfulness recounted in chapter 2 is a window into Gomer's unfaithfulness to Hosea. Ponder how Hosea might exemplify God's love as we read Hosea chapter 3 verses 1 to 5. So the whole chapter, it's a short chapter. Follow along as I read. And the Lord Yahweh said to me, so this is Yahweh speaking to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecheth of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. We're going to unpack this chapter, Hosea chapter 3, under the following headings. Love's pursuit, love's purchase, and love's purpose. Those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. We're going to see that Hosea, he pursues his wayward wife to show forth God's pursuit of his people. We're going to see Hosea purchase and redeem his wife back from debt and despair. And finally, this chapter promises hope and joy in the service of the Lord God in the latter days as God's loving purposes are disclosed. We'll unpack each of these in turn. Let's begin with our first point, love's pursuit. As we do, set your eyes there on verse 1 of chapter 3 again. And notice the emphasis on love. Pay attention to where love emerges. Verse 1, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Here we see the persistent pursuit of God's faithful love. Even in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness. Hosea is to pursue Gomer in love because Yahweh will pursue Israel in love. This is brought out through the Lord's command to Hosea to go again and love a woman who's loved by another man. You know, initially when we looked at chapter 1 verse 2, the Lord commanded Hosea to go and take a wife, to take Gomer to be his wife. But now he's told to go again and really to love again. At first he was told to love a woman who would be unfaithful, but now 
he is told to persist in loving a woman who has been unfaithful. And carefully observe the nature of love. Love, if it is to be anything like God's love, it must go. It must pursue. It must press on and persist even during great pain. Hosea must get up and go. He cannot hold on to his hurt and hole up in his home. He's got to go and get Gomer. He cannot wait for Gomer to come to her senses and come to him. He must go to her. For she is in need. And think about this. Often, right, when we've been hurt, going is contrary to our own impulses. When we are hurt and offended or sinned against, we tend to bottle it up, to push it down, to block it out, to avoid, to our shame. This is what we do with friends who have hurt us. Uh, this is what we do with fellow church members, brothers and sisters in Christ. Being sinned against as an experience is just incredibly painful in and of itself. And yet here is Hosea. He has been sinned against by his wife. And arguably, sometimes the hurt of a spouse runs even deeper than that of a, a friendship. Hosea has shared a home with Gomer. He has shared his heart with her, his body and soul with her. He has begun to raise children with her and she has wounded him to the core of their covenant. When we see broken marriages and families in our day, often former spouses will move away to a different city, a different county, a different state. Often former spouses will move away from one another, but Hosea is commanded to move toward Gomer. Going to her is not the easy path. It's the hard path. It's often the Christian path, isn't it? What if when we were sinned against, hurt or offended, we decided to stay in the relationship rather than move away from it? What if we decided to go to our friend or to our brother and sister in Christ and say, look, you have sinned against me in this way. And we, we need to be specific. What, what command of God have, has our friend or brother and sister in Christ broken in sinning against us? How specifically have they sinned against us? And we need to say, look, I believe that you've sinned against me in this way. And I stand ready to forgive you. I'm ready to be reconciled to you. I want you to know that I will not leave you or forsake you. Will you make the harder choice to love rather than to leave? To move toward rather than away? That's what Jesus did, isn't it? This is what our Savior has chosen to do and has done. He chose to set His feet upon the earth where a people did not love God. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the grief of rejection. He was one from whom men hid their faces. And yet we read this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, our Savior, He has moved toward us in love. And in that way, Hosea, he prefigures Christ to us. Hosea was commanded to go after Gomer, and in doing so, he embodied and exemplified God's pursuing love to a people who had despised and rejected him. We, we catch something of this, even this rejection, in the language of love a woman. The word for woman in the, the Hebrew scriptures is uh, isha, it could be translated wife or woman, depending on the context. And I think that the translators of the ESV, at least the, the ESV that I'm using, I think they've chosen correctly to translate this woman. They, they somewhat detach Gomer from Hosea in, in doing that. She's just a woman. Right? Through her conduct, Gomer has 
forfeited her claim to the marriage covenant. That's what we learned in Hosea chapter 2, verse 2. If you look over nearly the beginning of that chapter, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. She's just a woman. Puzzle over even why verse 1 does not say, go again, love Gomer. It doesn't say, go love your wife. It doesn't even say, go again, love Gomer. Why don't we even get her name at this point? Why is she just some almost seemingly anonymous woman? Couples who have gone through adultery and infidelity know the answer. Uh, They can tell you why. It's because the discovery of infidelity robs a spouse of their identity. A husband with a wayward wife feels as though he doesn't know her anymore. He asks, "Who, who is this woman? A wife with a wayward husband asks, where is the man I married? I I had no idea you could do something like this. Who are you? See, infidelity robs us of our identity. My people become not my people. This world will tell you not to deny yourself. You should do what will make you happy. This world will applaud an affair as an act of self-discovery. But in truth, it's an act of self-destruction. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32 says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Infidelity, it robs us of our identity. And the Bible describes our sin against God as spiritual adultery, spiritual infidelity. James 4.4 calls us an adulterous people when we fall in love with the world. Friends, recognize this. Sin destroys us. It weakens us. It weakens our consciences, our wills. Sin is bitter, it is binding, it's the beginning of the end of our freedom and identity. Through her adultery, Gomer has abandoned Hosea and she has become a woman with no name, no family, no home. She's lost and she needs to be found. And it's significant that that Gomer is identified, what she is identified by is as an adulteress. That has become her identity, an adulteress. The word has connotations of ongoing habitual infidelity. Gomer's not an adulteress by accident. Rather, it's her choice. And sadly, too often we cannot escape the conclusion that far too often sin is our choice, our ongoing choice too. Gomer has abandoned Hosea, but God has commanded Hosea not to abandon Gomer. He must go and get her, even though she is giving herself away to other lovers. Just because Gomer has been adulterous does not mean that Hosea should abandon the marriage covenant. And there's a relevant point for us here too. In the scriptures, adultery can be grounds for divorce. Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 19 verse 9, which many of us read this past week in the the Bible reading challenge. In the old covenant, adultery was even grounds for death. You can see Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. But Hosea is not permitted to claim those grounds or pursue divorce. Instead, he is called, he's commanded to pursue Gomer. An adulterous violation of the marriage covenant is always grievous. But that does not mean that divorce or abandonment of the covenant should always be pursued. Sometimes marriages can be healed in God's grace. and We should labor for that. Often that means that the innocent party must move toward the guilty party. And forgive. Again, this is what God has done with his people. Look at the second half of verse 1. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. You see, Hosea is to pursue 
Gomer in her unfaithfulness because God is going to pursue Israel in her unfaithfulness. Hosea is to keep loving Gomer because God will not stop loving his people. He is called to love her. Right? It is, um, it's one thing, right? Just to bring her into his home. God's not merely calling Hosea to go, just bring her into your home. God's not saying, you know, you're her husband, so make sure she's fed and clothed and provided and protected and she's got a roof over her head. What does he say? He says, go and love her. Right? Go and, go and win her heart. Love her. Allure her. Speak tenderly to her. Be gentle with her. Cherish her. But consider the sin of Israel, for it's a mirror image of Gomer's sin against Hosea. They turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Just as Gomer turned to other lovers, Israel turned to other gods. Just as Gomer went looking for pleasure in the world, Israel went looking for pleasure from other gods. And Hosea chapter 2, they named the gods in view. We thought about them last week, right? They're the, the Baals, the, the sea gods, the, the storm gods, the fertility gods, various gods that were scattered throughout the region. Israel went to the Baals looking for, for peace, for prosperity, and for progeny. They went looking to the Baals for life when Yahweh alone is the God and giver of life. Israel should have known that. In fact, this language of turning, they, they turn to other gods. That word turn can also be translated embrace. Right? That's what Gomer did. She didn't merely just turn to other lovers. She embraced them. That's what, that's what Israel has done with a whole heart. They've embraced these gods. They violated the first commandment, right? That's what the first commandment prohibited. God said in Exodus 20, they were to have no other gods. But Israel is embracing other gods right in the sight of God. Israel does not merely look at other gods. She loves them. And we should not be surprised by the truth that what we look at is often what we love. What do your, do your eyes wander to? What do you love? Maybe what you're, you're looking at will give you a clue. What do your eyes spend a lot of time on? Is your heart there and invested there? Israel loved other gods. But do you know what else she loved? Cakes of raisins. A friend of mine used to say that raisins were evidence of the fall. Uh, he would say that raisins, they ruin a perfectly good oatmeal cookie. Um, he had a strong distaste for them, needless to say. But these, these cakes are mentioned alongside the, the worship of other gods, so it's probable that they were part and parcel of pagan worship. There's uh, some evidence from the Song of Solomon that raisins were associated with sensuality. And while that's appropriate in a marriage covenant, we've just been told that Israel has gone after other gods. Israel seeking pleasure and satisfaction from other gods. Well, what are our raisin cakes? What are those things that we've been seeking pleasure from in this world, apart from God? What do we feel like we can't uh, live without? Or at least we really, really want to live with. What are we drawn toward? What do we love? Safety has certainly been a recent raisin cake for some. Sexual sin, a, a raisin cake for others. Success in this world. Knowledge that puffs up. Many of us have loved comfort and ease. Some sloth. Independence from family, perhaps. Uh, consumption and consumerism. Work. We've loved work more than we've loved our God who's given us other responsibilities as well. 
We've loved the favor of the world. We, we want the world to think well of us. So we modify behavior to do this or that to make sure that we're not put on the outs with the world. Perhaps we've loved political protection or promotion. And wealth certainly comes to mind as one of our potential raisin cakes. We, we want these things sometimes more than we want God. And yet, though we turn to these things, though we embrace them, He pursues us and loves us. The Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn. God's love pursues us though we cause Him pain in our pursuit of sin. He knows our history. He knows our unfaithfulness. He knows our darkness, our depravity. He knows the, the litany of our sins. He knows every one of them and He loves us still. And He comes after us still. He says to us, I know that you have run after other gods. I know that you've loved the raisin cakes of this world and I will still pursue you. I'm going to persuade you that I love you. Friend, I wonder if you're here this morning and you feel like the Lord is pursuing you. You feel like the Lord is He's after you. you. You need to know why. He's pursuing you because He loves you. He loves you. And you also need to know this. Love doesn't merely pursue. It also pays the price. We've, we've thought about love's pursuit and now we need to turn and consider our second point, love's purchase. This is what we learn in Hosea chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Follow along again as I read. Verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecheth of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Hosea, he's just been commanded by God to go to get Gomer and notice what he does. He obeys. Uh, we marvel at Hosea's obedience when we, we thought about chapter 1. We studied chapter 1. Remember, we marveled at the fact that God asked or commanded Hosea to go and marry a woman who would turn out to be unfaithful to him. And we reflected on the fact that Hosea didn't protest and suggest that he had the gift of singleness and now is not the time for marriage. No, he obeyed immediately. He obeyed all the way and right away. Even though it would cost him much. Even though it would bring him much pain. And what do we have here? Right? Verse 1, there's a command given. God said, go. And Hosea's report is, so? I went and did what God said. He obeyed. This obedience would also bring him hurt. He knew this and still he obeyed. There must have been some hurt involved in this obedience. Surely as he went to go and get Gomer, he remembered all that she had done to him. How she had hurt him. Loved him and left him. There may have been public pain as well. Right? Hosea is a prophet of God. He's a man known among the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. He has these children with these strange names. This is the kind of person you cannot forget. And of course, when adultery happens, it, the news scatters and is known. There's personal pain for Hosea. There's public pain. And yet he obeys again. And now we learn something else about Hosea's obedience, about his love. It would be costly. Love would have to make a purchase. Love would have to pay a price. There was no other way for Gomer to belong to Hosea than for him to buy her back. Hosea would have to buy back his wife, his own wife. 
A woman who should have belonged to him. But before we even get into the costly nature of the purpose, we need to understand why he's having to make this purchase. Why does, why does Hosea have to buy Gomer? Well, the simple answer is this. is because her sin has enslaved her. That's what all sin does. Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 34, said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. All sin enslaves, and Gomer's sin has plunged her deep into debt. We're not given any of the details of how this came to be, but the only explanation could be of Gomer's purchase is that her actions and adultery had run up a bill. In those days, in, in order to pay off a debt, you would enslave yourself to a master in order to pay off what you owed. Pay off your debt. But things are going so poorly for Gomer that even now her master's willing to, to sell her and be rid of her. But who would want Gomer? Who would want a woman brought so low by sin? Hosea did. Who would want us brought so low by our unfaithfulness and our sin? Jesus does. He wants us and so he came to get us. Hosea wanted Gomer. And when you think about it, right, we are tempted to read ourselves into, the, into Hosea's shoes in the story. But when we're being honest with ourselves, we, we really come to recognize that, that we're Gomer. We're the, we're the villain, kind of, of the story. We've run out on God. We've been used by false gods and used them. We've sold ourselves to them. We've racked up a, de a debt, a mountain so high that we could never get out from underneath it. And yet, here's the remarkable thing about our God. He comes to us and says, I love you, and I will pay the price to set you free and make you mine. It was necessary for Hosea to buy Gomer back. He, he had to have her. It was the only way. He paid, you see, there 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecheth of barley. You read this, you go, why this amount and why in this way? Well, according to Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, the price of a slave was 30 shekels of silver. That's probably the amount that we're looking at here, right? Hosea pays half in silver and the remaining part in food. And from one angle, this price is not exorbitant. 30 shekels of silver was a common amount for a slave in, in the law and probably in the ancient world as well. Yet from another angle, this might have been exceedingly costly. It, it might have been everything that Hosea could afford. He probably had trouble coming up with the full amount. Perhaps he empties his bank with 15 shekels and he empties his barn with the remaining food. Now we're, we're making something of an educated guess here, but we can't imagine that a prophet was paid very well in ancient Israel, especially when he's preaching judgment. Not only that, but he's a single dad supporting three kids. His wife, her abandonment, no doubt, uh, had financial implications to anyone who has ever known Infidelity and adultery knows that such behavior wreaks havoc on a family's finances. Hosea likely gave all that he had to purchase Hosea back. Thirty shekels of silver may have been nothing to a rich man, but it could have been everything to a poor prophet. Love's purchase was costly. Consider that Gomer contributed nothing to her redemption. Nothing but her sin. No work. No her work actually plunged her only deeper into debt, made matters worse. Gomer contributed nothing and less than, less than nothing to her redemption by Hosea. And the same is true with us. We have sinned against the Lord, who Isaiah 
And Isaiah 54 verse 5 tells us is our maker, our husband, and our redeemer. We have sinned against the Lord God. And Jesus, having been commanded by God, He has come. And He sought us. And He's bought us with His redeeming blood. Let us remember and rejoice that Jesus has paid the price for the debt of our sin. Let us remember that we've contributed nothing to our salvation. No work. No, our works just make matters worse. No, we've contributed nothing. But Jesus paid it all. Right? Jesus paid it all. He gave all that He had so that we might have all that He had. Jesus told us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that He gave His life as a ransom payment for His people. Remember what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter says this, Knowing that you were ransomed, or redeemed, purchased from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Right? When someone is ransomed or redeemed, a payment is made to rescue them from being held in bondage. And Peter is telling us, as I read from 1 Peter, Peter's telling us that, what, that Jesus did for us what Hosea did for Gomer. Though Jesus paid with his life and his blood. Jesus loved us so much that he came to redeem us. And when you think about it, working in sin, as Peter put it, working in sin really is futile. Right? Just as Gomer's Adultery was irrational. So was our spiritual adultery against God. Sin is irrational. It's irrational to rebel against the living God. It's irrational to run out on Him, to run away from Him. But that's just what sin is. It's rebellion against God. It's running out on Him, running away from Him. But in truth, God will have His way. And there is no way we can overtake His throne or outrun His love. In light of this, it's so kind of Jesus to rescue us, to redeem us, and to ransom us. And think about what Gomer was ransomed with, with silver and food, things that are perishable. Now think about what we are ransomed with, with Jesus' very own blood. Consider these words from Mr. Spurgeon. He writes, Place innocence and merit and dignity and position and Godhead itself in the scale and then conceive what must be the inestimable value of the blood that Jesus poured forth. Here is the good news. That Jesus not only died on the cross paying the wages of our sin, paying the ransom and redemption price to set sinners like us free from eternal condemnation and death and hell, but Jesus also got up from the dead. He was raised from the dead and he was given glory. He was given a glorified body, a body which could never die again. And this is why our faith and our hope are in God. Because he has promised us a future grace. Because he's made us his beloved bride. Because Jesus has ransomed us from futility and from the fire of hell. And because our hope has been raised from the grave to sit on the throne of heaven. Friend, if you're here this morning. You're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to let go of your embrace of this world. To let go of your embrace of sin and to turn and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. The one who shed his blood and paid the ransom price for all of your sin. 
Turn to him and believe that he lived for you. The life that you've not lived, the life that I've not lived, the life that nobody has lived but him. The righteous life of obedience unto God the Father. I believe that he laid that life down for you and was raised for the forgiveness of your sins. Come to him in repentance and faith and be one who will enjoy his fellowship and presence forever in eternity. Believe that he purchased you to make you his own. And this is really the goal of love's purchase. Right? Do you see what Hosea said to Gomer there in verse 3? He, in effect, says, you are mine. Hosea, he, he forbids Gomer from going after other lovers. In fact, they themselves, Hosea and Gomer, will not be intimate in marriage for many days. The, the bottom line and good news of verse 3 is that Gomer belongs to Hosea yet again. Love's purchase has made a claim on her life. And the same is true for we who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. In an almost seemingly direct analogy, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Even more, just a chapter later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, Paul says, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Just as Gomer, having been bought, purchased by Hosea in his love, even as she could not live in any way she pleased, neither can we. We must live to please God. Just as Gomer had to turn from her sin, so we must continually turn from ours. Just as Hosea sought to restrain Gomer's sinful tendencies in pursuing her loves of other men, So it is a mercy of God to restrain our sinful proclivities by the power of the Holy Spirit. He tells us no. And though it is a word of discipline to us, it's also a word of grace calling us into devotion to God. Having been sought and bought by Christ, what do we owe to Him? We owe everything to Him. Henry Law Great last name, by the way. Henry Law, an Anglican minister in the 17th century, drew out some practical implications of what this means to be redeemed and restrained by Christ. Law writes, Redeemed ones are no more their own. Your time is redeemed. Use it as a consecration, as a consecrated talent in God's cause. Your minds are redeemed. Employ them to learn God's truth and meditate on God's ways. Your eyes are redeemed. Let them not look on vanity. Close them on all sights and books of folly. Your feet are redeemed. Let them trample on the world and climb upward the hill of Zion and bear you onward in the march of Christian zeal. Your tongues are redeemed. Let them only sound his praise and testify to his love and call sinners to his cross. Your hearts are redeemed. Let them love him wholly and have no seat for rivals. We have been redeemed and we owe everything to Christ our Savior. And it's our great privilege to be redeemed by Christ. And as we give ourselves to living in the ways of Christ, we will find that it's our great pleasure too. There's a purpose behind Hosea's requirement that Gomer come into his home, refrain from pursuing other lovers, and even refrain from marital intimacy with Hosea. Gomer, in this period of abstinence, is picturing Something which will unfold in history. So having considered love's pursuit, let's consider, uh, and and love's purchase, let's consider now our third point, love's purpose. Follow along as I I read verses 4 and 5 of Hosea chapter 3. 
For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in the fear, in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. As I mentioned a moment ago, Homer's, uh, Hosea's command and Gomer's period of abstinence from intimacy pictures a purpose of God. That's what the word for, how it's functioning there. It's announcing something to us. It's working like this. Gomer, you must remain chaste for many days. You must be bereft of physical intimacy and love for many days because for many days, for many days, the children of Israel will be bereft of the following things. And then Hosea goes on to list a number of things that the people of Israel are going to go without. Gomer will go without marital intimacy, so Israel will go without a king or prince, sacrifice or pillar, ephod or household gods. And these things that Hosea announces that Israel will be bereft of are a mixture of both good and bad. Israel will be without a prince or king, without a ruler for quite some time. Though nearly all of the northern kingdom's kings were corrupt and contemptible, the promise of a Davidic Messiah and king was still a very good thing. And those who had hearts full of faith in the promises of God, the promises of a coming Davidic Messiah and King, would have recognized that this would be a burden. Those who had hearts full of faith, this period of abstinence, would have ached as they waited for God to make good on His promises. They'd be made to wait upon the true lover of their soul, that true and final King. The question is, do we feel this now? Right, as though our King has come, though Christ has come, though the Messiah has come, He's also ascended into heaven, and we are now waiting for His return. Do we, do we ache for His return? Are we waiting with eager expectation? Do your hearts beat with anticipation for our King's return? Or are we happy to live out the existence of our lives on earth here, giving little thought to the fact that He's coming again? Do we long for the coming of our king and his kingdom in its final form? Israel will be without a king, and they will also be without sacrifice or pillar. And here Hosea is telling Israel that they will be without corporate worship. They will be without temple worship and certainly without the sacrificial system for centuries. Now, I don't know about your experience of the the lockdown, but it was painful, even depressing at times for me. It was perhaps some of the most agitated weeks of my life. Those weeks we were out without corporate worship were difficult. Uh, uh, another pastor friend of mine said that it's during that time he felt impoverished. I wonder how you felt. We should feel bereaved in the absence of corporate worship. It should be a period of mourning and loss because that's precisely what it is. We should never want to go back there again. We should make every possible effort to meet together and we should give thanks for every Lord's Day that we are permitted by God's sovereign hands to gather. And children, I want to encourage you to have a particular disposition toward gathering with God's people. I want to encourage you to not think, I have to go to church, but to think, I get to go to church. I get to go and engage with the one true and living God and with His people, the family that God has called my family into. We should not take the gathering of God's people for granted, nor should we forsake it, according to the Scriptures. Israel... They will also be without ephod or household gods. The ephod was a part of the high priest's garments. 
But what is most likely in view here is a, a religious symbol like the one that Gideon misused in Judges chapter 9. This is most likely the case since it's paired with household gods. In other words, Israel would be forced to abstain from illicit forms of worship, just as Gomer was forced to abstain from pursuing other lovers. This period of time where Israel is bereft of false loves, the gods of other nations, and made to anticipate good and right loves, the coming of the Messianic King and holy worship, they're given for the purpose of training the hearts of God's people to return to Him. That's what we learn from verse 5, right? That God's loving purpose in laying upon Israel this kind of discipline is to lead them to seek the Lord in repentance as they receive their long-awaited king with joyful fear. The, the purpose of this period of time, this coming exile that will come for the northern kingdom of Israel, the purpose of that exile is to prepare Israel, the people of God, for the return of their king, for the coming of their king. And there's good news here. Right? Though this period of deprivation will go on for an excruciating long period of time, it will come to an end. They will not return to their former ways, but instead they will return to the Lord, and the Lord will return their king to them. He will return as their king to them. And in view here is not merely a physical return from exile, but also in view here is a spiritual return from exile. I think that we should see in verse 5 a clear promise of the Messiah's coming. At the time of Hosea's prophecy, David is long dead. His house has been or will be soon cut down to a stump. The northern kingdom falls in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom of Judah will fall in 586 B.C. The, the booth of David will be fallen, and God will have to raise it up. And notice that the people of God will both seek the Lord and David their king. That's because we know from the Scriptures that the future Davidic king would be none other than God in the flesh. And God's people will seek this king with eagerness and joy. They will. In the words of Psalm 2, verses 11 and 12, serve the Lord with fear and kiss the Son. This is what Hosea's audience is waiting for. They were waiting for the Davidic king who would reunite God's people, restore God's worship, and spread the goodness of God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And the New Testament plainly teaches us that Jesus is the David that the ancient people of God were waiting for. That's how the New Testament opens, right? With Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In fact, in Mark chapter 11, verse 10, during the course of his triumphal entry, the people shouted this concerning Jesus, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And the angel of the Lord told Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. In Romans chapter 1 verse 3, Paul confirms that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. And in Revelation chapter 5 verse 5 we're told this good news. Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and to its seven seals. Love's purpose in this discipline was to pave a path to the coming Messiah. Hosea is predicting the coming of Jesus. But why will the people of God come to him? Do you see it there in verse 5? Because of his goodness. Did you notice that toward the end? The prophet Jeremiah tells us in connection with the new covenant that God's people will be satisfied by his goodness. 
And if you know anything about the Lord Jesus, then you know that He is good. He loves the weak. He loves the weary. He loves the wicked. He heals the sick and the sinful in body and soul. He is the, he's the good shepherd. And He is a good king. And when will all of this take place? When will God's people return to seek the Lord? When will David, their king, come? Look at the last four words of verse 5. When will they come to revel in His goodness in the latter days? This is a phrase that the uh, Old Testament prophets love to use. And for Hosea, this meant a day long in the, the future. But what about for us? The Apostle Paul tells us, tells the church in Corinth, that they, that church in Corinth, they are upon, they are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. The writer of the Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways God the Father spoke to our prophets, but in these last days, or in these latter days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And in chapter 9 of that same work, in Hebrew chapter 9, the writer tells us that Jesus has appeared at the end of the ages. So what does this mean for us? It means that we are in that period of time, in the latter days. And our calling is to return and seek the Lord and Christ our King. We should come to Him with joyful fear and revel in His goodness. And we should invite others to do the same. As we come to the Lord Jesus and invite others to do the same in the last days, we're preparing our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers for the last day, for the day of Christ's return, when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. We are not at that last day. And so it's our privilege and calling to tell people in these latter days to come to the Lord Jesus, come to this one who is full of goodness and truth. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. God, He has fulfilled the promises of love's purpose in Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. God's ancient people went through exile and God sent His Messiah and King. And in His coming, Jesus pursued sinners like us and He purchased our pardon on Calvary's tree. Our God has performed this history, this long history, to win you, to woo you, to bring your wandering to an end. He knows you've been wayward. But His love, His love is heavier than the weight of your sin. His love is longer than the list of your sins. So come to Him as Gomer came home to Hosea. Come home to Christ, your Redeemer. The Lord Jesus loves you. He has pursued you. He has purchased you. And His purpose is to bind you to Himself forever. Forever.